Thanks for joining us today as we're carrying on in our series called Big Butts of the Bible. Now, when we think of these big butts of the Bible, I want us to understand that often what we have within them is a comparative. There is this thing that this word but comes in to alter whatever the previous thing was. And so whether it's uh, Paul saying he's the chief of all sinners, but God, right? Like talking about the activity of God within his life. So there's this amazing things that take place whenever you find these big butts in the Bible. So the second one we're going to be looking at is taken from 1 John chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 18 for our context, for our understanding for today. And if you don't know where the book of 1 John is in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. Please use it. It'll help you figure out where things are as you get more familiar with your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, here's what it says. And so we know and rely on the love of God, the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us. So we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking at what it means to be a people who have this love that we rely on and know of from you, that we will be a people who will be secure in our understanding of what it means to live with you, serve you, what it means to face judgment day uh, without fear, knowing that we're going to be living for you, striving for you, and worshiping in you. In your name I pray. Amen. So John is one of these characters within the Bible who has a lot of really strong contentions. I mean, if you were looking at his resume, you find that he is the youngest disciple that was called. You find that John is the one who is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. He was taken in a vision to the throne room of God, which is a remarkable thing because not a lot of people had that experience even within the Bible. So John is one of these guys who has this heart for God that we can really press into trying to understand and, and learn from. So when we're looking at 1 John, he seems to assume that the readers, the hearers of this letter, are already familiar with what the gospel is. So he doesn't go on and try to explain the gospel. He actually leads and kind of leaps from the gospel to try and, and bring a couple of other things to these readers that they didn't necessarily have. And so one of those things would be, uh, uh, like he would be concerned with building a sense of confidence within these Christian believers. A confidence in knowing their position with God, who, how they stood before him, and, and to be able to sit back and say, okay, I don't have to be anxious about this, I don't have to worry about this, I can be secure and confident in my relationship with Jesus. Secondly, believers are to examine their own lives for evidence that they have a true relationship with Jesus. This is one of the other things he was calling them to. So it's like, okay, so based on the gospel and because of what the gospel did in our lives, you can be secure. But then even within that, what fruit is coming out of our lives that is the evidence that we have a relationship with Jesus? So this is a concern for him in this passage or in this chapter, book. <clears throat> he also challenges false teachers and their claims about Jesus. One of the things you'll note about John specifically 
is that when you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he is very concerned about these false teachers that emerge from within the church and begin to lead people astray. And he actually references them as antichrists, which is a very significant term, as you could well imagine. If somebody came to you and said, you're an antichrist, um, I imagine that that would be pretty offensive. And so in his desire to bring security, we read 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And in this, there's this language of repetition. And in whatever you see repetition, you know that it's a literary form where they're attempting to drive home a point. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 to 14 says this, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then he carries on in verse 14. I'm writing to you dear children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so this is that sense of security that he's trying to bring to them. Listen, I'm writing to you because you're secure, because you, the security that you have is based on Jesus's work on your behalf, not on your work on your behalf. Um, that you've known him from the beginning, that you're strong, you can overcome the evil one. This is what he's attempting to do. And then when he, he does this, he reinforces the truth of the gospel lived out in their lives. He then leaps on, and, and not just talking about this, phrasing of I write to you in, in six times here in this particular passage. But when you drop down over to verse 21, he says it again, and this verse adds uh, this additional language of writing to them. It actually says in verse 21, so I am writing to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And what we find here is that this is where John begins to take this turn of his attention, though still talking to the faithful believers, his, his attention is turning to the, the lies and the deception of those false teachers that are coming up from within the church. And so in this case, he draws attention to the false teachers. He calls them antichrists in verses 18 to 27. And, and these false teachers, if you want to know what made them false teachers, they denied that Jesus was the Christ. And we read that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. So they didn't have both the Father and the Son. They denied the reality of Jesus' incarnation in terms of him being the Messiah. And so 1 John 2, 18 to 27, warns against those who oppose Jesus in their teachings. These antichrists deny that Jesus is God. They reject him as part of the Trinity or claim that he didn't appear in the flesh at all. And so you can well imagine that if the claim is that Jesus did not appear in the flesh, then his death on the cross wasn't real. And if his death on the cross wasn't real, there is no salvation. That's the problem with, at the time, what was referred to as Gnosticism. It, and the, Gnostics, the Gnostics had this belief that the flesh was inherently evil, so then because the flesh is evil, Jesus could not have become flesh because the flesh is evil. And so then there's the idea that Jesus was either just spirit or, or, or these various things that would come along with it. And, and so, he. John is attempting to deal with these claims as being false. And he also refers to the truth abiding in someone, encouraging his readers to hold to the gospel that saved them. 
And so according to John, these people that are attempting to deceive all the other believers are, are significant players within the text. Now, it, it's also important to note that John talks about three groupings of people that are able to deceive. First off, he says that they're able to deceive themselves. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, it's the idea of, listen, don't, don't pretend that we don't have sin in our lives. You've got sin, and, and it's not okay. We've got to confess it. We've got to repent of it. We've got to move away from it. But we don't deny it. Denying it is, is well, it just makes us a liar. Secondly, there, there's the deception that comes from other people. This is 1 John 3, 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And so don't let others lead you astray. Right? So you could lead yourself astray in terms of deceiving yourself. Others can lead you astray. And then there's this specific place for false teachers that he talks about. In 1 John 2.26, he says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And specifically, he's talking about these false teachers who are denying the claims of Jesus. And in 2 John 1.7, it actually adds, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. And then in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, one of the five names of Satan is actually the deceiver of the world. He is the ultimate source of deception, which explains why John refers to these teachers as antichrists. Now you might wonder, well, what has all this got to do with fear and love and, 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 and these kinds of things? Well, when you look at the chapter context of 1 John chapter 4, which is where we read from talking about the perfect love drives out fear, it warns Christians not to accept every claim that they hear. Instead, actually, they're told to test the spirits to see whether or not these, these teachers and the spirits that were within them would actually claim that Jesus was, in fact, everything that he said he was. Instead, believers have to compare what they hear to the basic truths of the gospel. And so John returns to the theme of love, explaining how the believer ought to live out the presence of God's love in their lives. And in addition to that, to live according to God's love, living accordingly, according to God's love takes away the fear of judgment. In no uncertain terms, those who claim to love God but hate others are liars, according to John. And so you've got a lot of things going in the mix here. And then very specifically within 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 to 19, which is where we find the crux of our passages, it's the backbone of John's letter. The primary way Christians are to be recognized is by love. Think about that. It's actually, you know, it's interesting to me because the, Jesus actually gives the one measuring stick to determine whether or not we are his followers. And that's the measuring stick that's for the believers, but it's also for the non-believers. And that measuring stick is that they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Who's the they? Well, it's everyone outside of the body of believers. And so Jesus gives the world at large the tool, the metric to determine whether or not we're Jesus' disciples. And that metric is our love for one another. And so then here again, it's the idea that love is preeminent within our Christian walk. True godly love is the most powerful evidence of being born again 
as a child of God, and it comes from God who loved us before we loved Him. And when we live in obedience to God according to love, we can be confident in our relationship with Him and have no fear of judgment. Which brings us to our passage. I've seen a lot of people use this passage to say, hey, this is how you get over fear. But there's a very specific fear that's being referred to here. And that specific fear is the coming judgment at the end of days where we, we sit there and, and, and wonder sometimes where we sit with God, right? Like there, there are people who are insecure in their thoughts of salvation. 1 John 4, 18, John seems to be speaking of a certain fear of judgment. If anyone is afraid of judgment, they only need to ask themselves if they love God and people, and love being the main subject of John's first letter. And here he's getting even clearer to the point. Like he says, you cannot love God and hate your brother, right? Like there's, there's a problem there. And so you could say then that evidence of love for God is the love for fellow believers. And when you break down this stuff, when you're looking at 1 John 4, 18, and I'll just go ahead and, and read that for you again. 1 John 4, 18, where it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so what does this even mean? Like, how does this break down? Well, John tells us that perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. I want you to, and this might sound strange, but I want you to think of Adam and Eve for a moment. Back in Genesis chapter 3, it says that after they sinned that they immediately experienced shame and fear. Immediately. They hid from God among the trees in the garden and the threat of uh, the threat of what God may do was just ringing in their heads. The day you eat of it, God told them, you will surely die. They fully expected to see the full force of God's justice and anger for sin. And so they ran and they hid. And so we sit back and we may ask ourselves, okay, well, was their fear justified? I actually believe that it kind of was. At this point, I believe their fear was justified because they had nothing to really believe in yet. At this point, there was no promise of the Messiah yet, but it was coming. They had nothing really to believe in yet. They knew the love of God in their creation. Certainly they had that. They could see the beauty of the garden in which they lived. They could still wonder in awe at each other and the loving act of God in bringing them together. But those things happened when they were good, when they were perfect, when there was no sin. Up until this point, they hadn't yet experienced God's love for sinners because there weren't any. Think about that for a moment. And then God comes in and he seeks them out. And you know what he does? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't destroy them. He didn't punish them in the sense that, in the way that they were afraid of, at least not in the way that they deserved with this eternal death and hell. Instead, he gave them the promise of a savior. This is what he does. He claimed them once again as his dear children. He showed them that even though they would have experienced physical death, yet he would claim them again in heaven and make a paradise for them. Perfect love drives out fear. 
God's love for Adam and Eve after the fall drove out the fear of punishment that caused them to hide. It enabled them to live without fear. It enabled them to die without fear. And so when we look again at 1 John, you know, chapter 4, verse 9 to 10, John writes, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God gave Adam and Eve a promise to hang on to, but He gave us that fulfilled promise in Jesus. Think about that for a moment. It, it creates this amazing space where we understand that with a promise being given to them, they didn't have to be fearful anymore. With a fulfilled promise, we don't have to be fearful anymore. And John says, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And it's interesting to me that statement because there are times in my life where I'm like, okay, Jesus, I'm ready. Just come already. Like, let's just go. Let's go into eternity. Be done with everything else here. I'm ready for you. But you know, if I'm honest, there are other times that I, that I got this thought in my head. I'm like, Lord, please let me not be one of those that call out, Lord, Lord, and you respond to them. Depart from me. I never knew you. Because these are people who thought they were doing the things of God for God, and yet they didn't have a relationship with Him. And I don't want to be that. I don't. And the more I tell my heart about the love of Jesus, the more I know of His life and His death and His resurrection, the more I study the stories of God within the Scriptures, the more I internalize the truths, the more complete my heart becomes in God's love. You see, because I'm not basing it on my fears anymore or my insecurities, I'm basing it on His truth, which is why it's so important for us to be in the Bible every day. So important. And that perfect love that we then experience, it drives out that fear. I don't have to worry about the Day of Judgment because God's love covered me. Like, I'm forgiven. And He's given this to me. It's a free gift of salvation. And all I do is say, yes, Lord. And then live faithfully for Him. God's love for us in Jesus doesn't just, just doesn't leave room for fear. God's love for me in Jesus lets me live without fear. It also, and this is important, it's also my motivation for keeping God's commandments and loving, and for loving God and my neighbor. And so I could say in that sense that God's love enables us to love without fear. And, and so you look at it and you're like, okay, so what is this? love thing that we talk about right? and we we hear about it all the time as it relates to our faith our world is enamored with the concept of finding love i think the first thing we need to understand about love is that love is more than just a feeling it's more like an activity it's actionable paul's definition of love and i would suggest to you that this is the, the ultimate description of god's love in terms of practical understanding of it that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it is, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4-7. And so love is more than just a feeling, it's something that you do. It's something you do. I also think if we're saying that that's the first thing to understand, that love is more than a feeling, it's an activity, it's an actionable. 
Then the second thing would be that loving God finds its expression by keeping God's commands. And I know that to be true because in the very next chapter, John relating this information back to the believers here in 1 John 5, 3, he says, this is love for God, ready? To obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. And so when I think about his commands, I'm like, okay, so when I worship him only, I love God. When I use his name to pray and to praise and not to curse, I love God. When I gather with other believers and, and, I, and I grow this love for his word, I, I love God. When I obey my parents and I'm kind to my enemies and I love my wife and so forth, and you just it's a litany of things in terms of the practical application of our faith. I love God and I'm showing my love for God. But I also want to say that Understanding that loving God and loving your neighbor are virtually amounts to the same thing. Remember what Jesus said about how a believer shows his love for the Lord? In Matthew 25, verse 34 to 40, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. This is talking about the judgment day. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For when I was hungry, what did you do? You gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needed clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And so John says the same thing in our text. If you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar because when you love your brother, you are loving God at the same time. And so the evidence of our love for God, are you ready? Is our love for fellow believers. That's the evidence of our love of God. But the point that John makes has to do with the why. Why we love God and show love to our neighbor. And John says, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And so we go down then to our motivations. What's my motivation for keeping God's commandments? Is it love or is it fear? It's not the fear that if I don't keep the commandments that God is going to strike me with a lightning bolt from heaven. That's not my motivation. My motivation is not because I'm afraid that if I don't keep his commandments that I'm just going to roast in hell for my disobedience. That's not my motivation. That's fear driven. And God's perfect love drives out fear. And so John says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. That's why we do. We're not, we don't love people. We don't do things for people because we're afraid of hell or afraid of punishment. We do it because we're secure in our relationship with God. And because we love him, we do the things that he calls us to do. Perfect love drives out fear. Our God is a father who loved us, gave us his son to redeem us as his own. 
And so then what we then do in relationship to that is first accept that truth and then live every day of our lives without fear, motivated to live for Him and to love God and our neighbor for the sake of Him who first loved us. That's it. You see, we don't fear judgment because we're secure in Jesus. And because we're secure in Jesus, our love for Him is shown by our love for others. And so then we serve and we love and we're gentle and we're gracious. The love for God and love for our neighbor for the sake of Him who loved us. What an awesome way to live, right? Great way to live. Love God, love others, and live without fear. That sounds like a pretty good plan to me. Seemed like a pretty good plan to John, and he certainly lived out his life that way. And my encouragement to you would be this. If you haven't been doing this yet, and if you've been afraid of judgment, then I want to encourage you to go back and read the beginning of 1 John and just keep reading the whole thing over and over and over again. Read it in one sitting and, and read it every day of the week until you get it within your head that you are secure in Jesus, not because of you, but because of Him. Because of His love in action towards you. You have received that gift of salvation. We no longer fear judgment. We are now motivated by the love of God. So because we love God, we're going to love others. And then in doing so, we're going to live more faithfully and most certainly be more content in this world that God has given us to live in. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that as people look at 1 John and as they study it and as they dive deeper into it, that they'll become more and more secure in the knowledge of who you are, more and more secure in your work on the cross and in the resurrection so that we don't live a fear-based Christianity, that our love for you propels us towards love for others and that we would leave no room for hate in our hearts for others, but rather we've replaced that with the affection that we gain from you to apply that to others in grace, in mercy, and in truth. In your name I pray. Amen.